Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to somebody that I've wanted to have a conversation with for quite some time, and that is Dr. Mark Bauerline. Some of you may have heard of him if you read the publication First Things. He runs a podcast over there, as well as regularly writes uh, essays. I, I particularly love his essays on literature. And he first came to my attention when I picked up a uh, copy of his book, and this is years ago already, uh, The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. This book was published in May 2008 to an enormous response. Because essentially his thesis was uh, that technology, the rise of technology and the elimination of reading books has made our culture stupid. It has made us unaware of our own history and thus unable to contextualize the president. It essentially makes us suckers who do not understand the times we live in and thus uh, are in the process of making idiotic decisions for our future. His book is it's quite brilliant and quite devastating at the same time. Obviously, in the uh, just over a decade since its publication, things have gotten markedly worse. I don't know if I can say that they've gotten much worse than Bauerlein uh, would have predicted, but his the trajectory of his findings in his 2008 book, The Dumbest Generation, uh, certainly hasn't improved at all. And so I wanted to have a conversation with him about uh, the findings in his book back in 2008, how things have gone for the last decade and how things are uh, looking uh, to go, how things uh, look like they will unfold over the next 10 years. Because, of course, the intellectual health of a nation, uh, our ability to connect with our own past, uh, to understand our present, to plan for the future, have a lot to do with whether or not we are a culture that shares a common canon of literature, of music, of poetry, uh, whether or not we even have a culture in common, uh, being as we are a culture now that is is busy euthanizing the old and aborting the young, we are a generation that seems so firmly entrenched in the present that we are quite certain the future will never come for us, uh, but it will. And I wanted to talk to Dr. Mark Bauerlein on what he thought that future might look like, and this is that conversation. Uh, The first question I guess I'd ask, just to give our listeners an idea of what we'll be talking about uh, for the next 45 minutes or so, is is what is the thesis of your book, The Dumbest Generation? Uh, The thesis is pretty obvious. Uh, This was in in 2008 that the the book came out, and I actually regard the the patterns described in that book as only having gotten worse. Right. Uh, The thesis was simple, that the, the screen entertainments and the screen media, uh, I mean social media, are crowding out uh, reading, especially reading books, uh, but also newspapers, magazines, uh, listening to intelligent conversation on the radio, and so on, are crowding, uh, those are being crowding out by the screen activities by the young. And the screen activities particularly have the social pull of them. They have peer pressure, peer fixations to go along with them, and that as more and more young people grow up through their teenage years, shifting over from those intellectual building activities to youth culture, youth stuff, peer stuff, that we see a decay of 
not only language and eloquence, as the, the youth idiom sticks even harder uh, with young people, but we see a decay of historical understanding, of political awareness, of of the the deeper sense of things, uh, including their tastes, you know, their discernment as consumers of entertainment, and that this is an extension of adolescence far beyond its proper time, and that if it continues, then then our culture is going to get even worse. So there's a lot to unpack there. I want to zero in on the last example first. Uh, When you say it affects their taste, for example, in entertainment and extends adolescence, what would some examples, some tangible examples of that be? Well, I think if you go back to my day, I mean, I'm, I'm 60 years old now, so I was a teenager in the 70s. Uh, I, we, we had one TV in the home, and you had five TV stations, <laughs> the right. networks, and then uh, PBS, which had just really started, and then a local station. Uh, at 6 o'clock, the news came on, you know, Walter Cronkite. Now, so, some people remember Walter Cronkite, uh, but uh, others don't, and they don't realize just what a big impact he had on American American political tastes and intellectual tastes. I had to overhear Walter Cronkite doing his broadcast because I couldn't go anywhere else. I didn't have my own TV. I didn't have any headphones. I didn't have any cell phone that I could text message my buddies back and forth. I couldn't go on the Internet. I didn't have other choices, so I had to overhear Walter Cronkite talking about Vietnam, about Watergate, and my parents commenting upon it. This, we will just say, was a form of adult pressure coming down on me when I was 15 years old, 14 years old, and I couldn't connect with my friends. I couldn't watch TV shows that had adolescents in them. So I, I had exposure to the adult world. I couldn't tune out as much as I, I did before. And that, that, that's just one, one simple example. When I would come home from school, maybe I'd meet with some buddies down in the, play basketball at a court, shoot around, or, or go play some baseball with them. But I come home six o'clock for dinner. Social life was pretty much over. We had the landline, as it's now called, but there was only one phone in the house. It was in the kitchen. I couldn't really get on the phone and, and talk to a whole bunch of people uh, all, all the time. Uh, I, I really entered a zone in which uh, parental parental cultures dominated. So the 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 phone has transformed that bedroom that I had. That bedroom was a private space. That bedroom now is a social space. A teenager's bedroom is a place where he can go upstairs, shut the door, and close out the rest of the house and the family and open up to all his friends and and fake friends, you know, thousands of miles away. He's got an array of options there with the laptop or the tablet with the with with the with the smartphone 
and he's got his Snapchat and Instagram and, and everything else that can make uh, youth culture, youth society, uh, a 24-7 thing, uh, if, if nothing else forces its way in and pulls him out of that network. And an extraordinary, you know, more than 80% of them sleep with the phone on right near their beds. Right. And they'll, they'll get awakened at, at, at two in the morning. They want to check and see what, what the picture is that's gone, that's gone circulating around. So when you were beginning to, to think about putting together this book in the first place, you talk about a, a precipitous decline in, in literacy, not in terms of not being able to read, but as Ray Bradbury once mentioned, you, you don't actually need to, to burn books. You just have to convince people not to read them in the first place. And, and a decline in the knowledge of history. When did you start noticing these warning signs? What were the things that you sort of picked up on uh, that basically led you to write what I would consider a, an update to uh, to the closing of the American mind? Well, I was working at the National Endowment for the Arts at the time, running a research program there. And one uh, ongoing project we had is called the Survey of Public Participation in the Arts. And we did that with the Census Bureau that would ask people about their leisure habits. Uh, how often do they go to the opera, listen to classical music or jazz? How often do they go to the theater, dance, go to museums? And also, how often do they read literature? And how often do they read books, just books in general? And what we find, found was between 1992 and 2002, the reading part had plummeted for the youngest cohort, 18 to 24-year-olds, they were reading significantly less than they were in, in, in 92 and 82. And 92 to 2002 is when the, 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 digital, uh, the digital tools, computers, the internet really started coming into young people's lives. And so I took that correlation and ran with it. And we did a special report on the reading, leisure reading decline. And I found all these correlations uh, that, that um, proved this. For instance, at the same time that young people are going to college and having to enroll in remedial reading and writing courses at, at stunning rates, uh, at the same time that the reading scores on the SAT and the ACT were dropping, were when reading less on their own, reading less leisure time. And I found a stronger correlation between leisure reading and test scores than there were between than there was between homework reading and test scores. So this this, this told me, this and other things told me that what people do in their leisure lives, the intellectual habits they have on their own, are much more important to academic success than than people than people realize. So that that was really the initial impetus uh, of the, the work I was doing at the Arts Endowment, and it was big big research. You know, the the, the Census Bureau is gold standard population research. So I tried to get as much uh, statistic uh, data in there as I could in order to back up my my grumblings about about the trends of, of the culture. I'll also say that over the, over the 80s and 90s, uh, we saw a real change happen in mass culture.
television uh, in particular, and that is that there was a strong presence of high culture in popular culture in American life. Right. You remember the the cartoons, which which would have the opera <laughs> in 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 them. Well, and 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 sitcoms would often reference works of classical literature that they assumed everybody knew about. They would. They would. When when Johnny Carson would would go on uh, a week off, he might be guest hosted by Beverly Sills, who was a an admired opera singer, and everyone knew her. She was a celebrity. So you you had to me the presence of high culture in popular culture was was quite common and i'll add you didn't have very many shows uh before 1975 there weren't many tv shows with teenagers in them you had people liking tv shows teenagers like me like gilligan's island and get smart uh but they didn't have teenagers in them I once did a. I once went back and looked at TV Guide in Atlanta in 1970. I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I only found one show all day long that had a teenager on a weekday, and that was something called the Patty Duke Show. She was a high school kid, uh, but by 1985, you had all these shows, Happy Days. Was one was one show that that, that came in, uh, which was really oriented around teenagers, high school kids. But you know, Saved by the Bell. All these shows suddenly had teenagers in them, especially with the with the expansion of cable television. And so I could go home, or a teenager in 1985 could go home and see teenagers on TV in a way that he couldn't 10, 15 years before. And my, my, my general feeling is, my goodness, don't they get enough of one another, you know, in, in school? And, and now, with social media, they are just with one another all the time. Right. And so peer pressure has gone way up, and adult pressure has gone down. One of the things that's that's sort of interesting about this, and there's so many different threads we could pull out here, but one of the things I wanted to ask you uh, was I was I was reading through uh, Anthony Eslin's latest book uh, recently, Nostalgia, and one of the interesting points that he makes is that we really started to lose a common literary culture, a common language that we all spoke and understood because it was just sort of assumed we'd all read the same things when they had to start teaching Shakespeare at at the college and university level. He sort of makes the point that Shakespeare used to be something everybody read at some point just because they were an English-speaking person in a civilized English-speaking country. And so when this became something that you had to be required to read and then tested on afterwards, that that was sort of like the first loud creaking uh, of of uh, the literary consensus. And then uh, following on to that, uh, when I went to university, I went to uh, quite a well-known but a very left-wing university uh, in Vancouver, Canada, I, I had initially uh, taken a, 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 a English minor with my history major and then ended up abandoning my English minor simply due to the fact that the vast majority of my English professors, with the exception of, of a few uh, wonderful older older men, 
were very determined to take classic works of literature and then vandalize them as quickly as they could. So we discovered Anne of Green Gables was probably a lesbian with her partner because there's no such thing as, oh, as a platonic friendship. No, this was a theory put forward by one major Canadian professor. And so at a certain yeah. point, I concluded that um, this was just uh, an exercise in iconoclasm, and I was better off just reading those books, and, and in many cases rereading those books in my spare time, rather than paying money to have somebody uh, try to force these books into a 21st century postmodern context. So to kind of taking a look at those two things, what have we lost in terms of a common culture? And then what do you think um, the progressives have had to do with sort of ruining uh, literature for a lot of people, as they attempted to do for me during my university experience? You know, it is true. In the 19th century, Shakespeare was hugely popular. There were Shakespearean troops who would travel around the country, and I, and, and including in the West, the far West, in Denver and San Francisco, and through the mining towns in between. They were hugely popular uh, back then. Same goes for opera. There was an Italian opera craze in America in the 1840s and the 1850s, and the opera singers were huge celebrities, wined and dined wherever they went. And, and yeah, when things leave the general culture and go into the curriculum as assigned works yeah they have a different they have a different status and and then the the academics get a hold of them and they all have to start being innovative and original they've got to produce original research at the research university so they have to keep coming up with ever more exotic theories and ideas and notions about things and We've got thousands and thousands of them doing this all the time, and so they look for edgier themes and and more more marginal uh, marginal ideas that seem to have some moral sanction to them at the same time. So they start talking about cross dressing in Shakespeare as if it's some some significant uh, phenomenon. They start attaching ideas about racism and sexism to things from the past. And, of course, at the same time that they claim that they are exposing something that we need to talk about, right. they're also giving themselves a huge self-compliment. They are signaling their own virtue, and they love to be able to punish their their disciplinary parents by telling them, well, we know so much more than you do now. We're so much more enlightened than you were back then. And this is one characteristic of the millennials, who are now, some of whom are now professors, is they, they really are the first generation that, that got it right. They're, they're the first group in human history really to have freed themselves of all the evils of discrimination. And, and the older, the old folks, well, we, we, really, we really failed. We really failed. And, and so... This is what we this is what we have now. They disrespect the past. This is one fundamental element of progressivism, right? The past is a failure. Right. The past hasn't done what needs to be done. We we look forward. We envision a better future and adherence to the past, respect for the past is actually a hindrance to the reform that we wish to institute. So, you know, let's, yeah, let's, let's take, let's take Ralph Waldo Emerson down a few pegs. Let's, let's, let's 
let's take down T.S. Eliot. You know, mm-hmm. let's take, let's take, let's pull them off the monument because they, they, they've got clay feet. And of course we don't, we don't have clay feet right. because we, we're, we're woke. Don't you hate that metaphor? Oh, it's 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 really irritating, and 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 there's there's well there's there's an irony about about somebody uh, failing to recognize that the culture that they're sitting on top of while they tweet about oppression from their thousand dollar iPad um, was not created by them, and that it takes destruction takes a far 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 shorter amount of time uh, than construction does, quite famously. Um, which is why everybody, I think, took so many metaphors from the fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral, because there was this, it was sort of this sickening feeling that, oh, uh, things that we thought would be there forever aren't necessarily going to be there forever. Um, that's what I think kind of shook people to their core. It was just this recognition that nothing lasts forever, and there's no good reason Western civilization needs to either, um, especially when the barbarians are at the gates. And, and and by that I mean, um, you know, the future is here. They're us, and we're in trouble as a result of it. Um, but yeah. b- back to that one, that one question, because I'm curious uh, as to your analysis of this. I've read some pieces that you've written for First Things magazine that touches on this. But what do you think we lost when we lost a, a common language? Right, like back in the day, oh, you you referenced right. Shakespeare, but then also I know you wrote a, quite an extensive column on this. I forget when you wrote it, but I remember reading it. On on what um, "To Kill a Mockingbird" means, that book has come under fire as well. But you 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 could at one point you could have assumed people had read Shakespeare. You could have uh, assumed safely they'd read at least some Mark Twain. Uh, you could assume safely that they'd read uh, Dickens, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, "To Kill a Mockingbird" for a somewhat later generation. So what did we lose when we arrived in an era where we can't assume that anybody's read any of those? And in in many instances, and this is very true for teens. We can't even assume they've heard of any of the books I've just listed. If you don't have a common tradition, then you can't have a coherent polis. I mean, this is part of the glue that makes us all Americans. You know, the great American novel. Uh, this is, you know, we, we have our political traditions, uh, you know, with the, with the Constitution, the founding documents, the founders, but for 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 the in the twentieth century it was very important. People you you gotta read Hawthorne and Melville and, and Mark Twain and Walt Whitman and, and Emily Dickinson and, and the rest. This is this is our literary heritage. And other countries have this and never question it at all. If you if you're in Italy, everyone in Italy knows Dante and everyone claims Dante. Right. As his own, his own inheritance. Uh, you know, in, in England, you know, the England, Shakespeare is Shakespeare. He's us. And it's one of the things that makes us, us. This is, now I think that that is deteriorating also in, in Europe. It's part of the globalist breakdown of culture, which follows the, the, the globalist breakdown of, of national sovereignty. Uh, so that you don't point to your 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 own background as a point of pride, uh, you don't want to do that too much because that, that that has the wrong attitude of openness to the other and and being interested in in a completely other, radically other times and places and and peoples. So I think we're seeing that trend happening in Europe, but in the United States, 
we, we've lost. Remember when they used to talk about the great American novel? Yeah. With capital G, capital A, capital N. Nobody talks about that. Well, they used to argue you about what the great American novel anymore. was, and everybody had an opinion yeah. on what the great American novel yeah. was. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, in the mid, in the mid 20th century, the, the novelists, people like Ralph Ellison and, and Faulkner was still alive, uh, Saul Bellow, uh, John Updike in the 60s, these were important voices, recognized as important voices about America. They were listened to very closely. So when William Faulkner gave his Nobel Prize speech uh, in, in 1950, it, it was republished everywhere. And it was, it was widely discussed all across America. Uh, one, person, one person said to me, you know, this was a very important moment because Faulkner's optimism in that speech was an answer to what we felt was T.S. Eliot's pessimism right. about about the modern the modern age, and I, I wow, it hit me that hard. It was that important, and this was a novelist talking. Is there any statement by a novelist that you can name today that anyone wants to listen to? I mean, a broad cultural cultural commentary which would reach that widely no i think it's been a i think it's been attempted right because you had you had um the the great the the great novelist and and i'll say great in terms of their genuine cultural significance like gore vidal norman mailer like that whole literary set that also hung out um or at least uh people like mailer did with with william f buckley and others um they wrote fiction but they also wrote cultural commentary and so they were seen as cultural interpreters, and they they kind of played that role in the culture. Well, the most recent writer I can think of that's tried to do that is Martin Amos, um, who's of course British, who's tried to do a bit of that, um, but I don't think has been in any way successful um, at trying to do it. And and it's sort of it, the writing is kind of clunky. That's of course just my subjective opinion. Um, but especially his 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 attempts at interpreting the post nine eleven world and things like that, um, or perhaps it's just um, the, the 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 ponderous British way that he has of writing doesn't suit well to fast paced American topics. It could be that as well. But I I can't think of of any of any great novelist living today that also does uh, cultural commentary and gets taken seriously. Yeah, I, th- I think the closest that I can think of in America was Tom Wolfe. Right, of course. Uh, and he, right. He tried to he tried to revive the realist, you know, in the novel of social realism for for the United States. And I think he, he did pretty well. I think I think he's, he's I think a lot of what he did is going to last. Um, but Hunter S. Thompson ne- never made any sense to me. I could never quite. I've I, I've read through <laughs> three of his books in an attempt to to discern why people think he's so great, and yeah. I cannot for the life of me wrap my head around why. He's considered a great journalist. Uh, what's my defect in that area? Well, <laughs> Norman Mailer, you mentioned Mailer. I think Mailer's book, The Armies of the Night, his account of the march in the Pentagon yes. in 1967, which has the subtitle, uh, the, the novel as history, history as the novel. It may be, it may be the other way around, but you, you, you get the yeah. point. Yeah. There's a novelist right at being being an observer of the American scene, very much uh, explaining what is going on, where we are right now, and and I think 
that he was respected then, because this is a novelist talking. This is a writer giving us his his version of of things. But look, in a, in a world where most people don't read novels, and they don't, they certainly in the, in the curriculum they don't read the same novels. Then you're you're just not going to get that respect and acknowledgement for the writer, for the novelist. Right. Yeah. That no. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And, and sort of moving moving along um, back to your thesis. So that's sort of the danger of of not of not having a, a a literary monoculture that everybody in the nation can identify with. What would the dangers of uh, a lack of historical knowledge be? And now, so there's of course the obvious ones. Um, there's the the danger that you're going to call everybody you disagree with a Nazi, which of course we're seeing happen, uh, which is endlessly yeah, irritating on both sides. It's <clears throat> it's ir- irritating, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to hear the progressives constantly use the word, and and I wish it just. William Shirer's The Rise and Third of uh, of the uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich would be required reading or something just so people could know who the Nazis were. It's also equally devastating to see, you know, the alt-right march in, in Charlottesville and hoist a flag with the knowledge that at least some of those young men probably had grandfathers that fought the last people who bore that same flag. So that historical illiteracy is camped out on both sides of of the spectrum meeting in the middle. And then, of course, there's the the massive resurgence of the popularity of socialism. So those are the sort of the two obvious and oft referred to, at least by conservative commentators, uh, dangers of historical illiteracy. But in your work, writing The Dumbest Generation and then sort of publishing your uh, your essay-length updates to that thesis ever since, what would you say the primary danger of, of historical illiteracy is? I think that it allows people to make judgments that are so off. You're, you're living with myths that are, that are so wrong. And that, so historical awareness is a kind of corrective to false realities. Right. For instance, uh, when, uh, when, when Donald Trump was elected, all the talk about the return of white supremacy I mean, did these look, these were, these were, this was a common talk on college campuses. And we still see this talk about white supremacy. Now, I, I wrote a book about, about white supremacy in, in Georgia a hundred years ago. I was focusing on, on a race riot that took place in 1906. And I did a lot of reading in white supremacist discussions, white supremacist journalism, which was very common at the time. And so, I, I was immersed. This was when white supremacy really became uh, an explicit issue in in the South. In America, I, I, I said, "You're using a word here for which there is no contemporary reality. You're, you're, this is delusional, but you wouldn't know this because you don't know anything about the history, right?" Of, of white supremacy when it really did exist. The fact that this country is still 65% white is not evidence of white supremacy. Uh, not, in, not in any meaning of the term that I can identify. The, 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 the fact that 
uh, African Americans only get 4% of the PhDs issued in the humanities every year, a far lower percentage than is their proportion of the general population. That That's not prima facie a, a case of white supremacy. And if you had any historical awareness of white supremacy, the way it actually operated in reality, you would know better. But they don't. So you can just start throwing things around. Your example of Nazi, you start throwing things around. You become terribly irresponsible when when you when you don't have any historical knowledge. Because look, when you use the term Nazi, you're making a historical judgment. Right. You're you're saying I know what Nazism. Let's be serious for a moment. I know who the Nazis were. I know what they did. I know why they did it. And I am taking that historical fact and I'm applying it to this situation. So you're you're making a historical claim for yourself when you use that word. So it's not as if they're denying history. They are saying, I know history, and I'm, I'm showing you're part of a bad history here. I know, when I say white supremacy, again, this is a historical term. It goes back about 120, 130 years. People didn't talk about white supremacy, uh, you know, in, in, in the year, in the year 1800. Uh, the, the, this idea of Anglo-Saxonism and, and the purity of white races, that's a much later historical phenomenon. Right. Uh, you know, when they, when they talk about lynching, we had lynchings taking place a lot in America. They were most common in the West, and the most common crime of lynching was for horse thievery. And it had absolutely no racial component whatsoever. It was only late in the 19th century that lynching became tagged as a as a kind of uh, a form of race terrorism in in mostly in in the South. Now, also, I've heard people I've seen scholars write about the Ku Klux Klan and and that the forms of race terrorism perpetrated by the Klan right. in in 1900. Well, guess what? The Klan didn't exist in 1900. The Klan was found, the first Klan was founded after the Civil War, and it lasted for about six years. It was a form of, of intimidating blacks away from the voting booth, to keep men, black men, out of the voting booth, so they wouldn't exercise their, their 14th Amendment rights. It was outlawed by Congress. It was called the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1870. The Klan wasn't revived again until 19, was it 1915 or 1916. There was no Klan before then. And in the 1920s, the Klan had a huge membership in this country. The estimates go as high as 5 million people. The states with the largest Klan membership were Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, not the southern states. And that, that, that died out with, with the Depression. Then you had a brief moment of, of revival in the 1950s as the Civil Rights Act proceeded. 
but but it, it over the course of the seventies and the eighties when we got so the clan is really just made up of clan groups now are made up mostly of a small number of of, uh, of sociopathic alienated estranged individuals i mean the Southern Poverty Law Center, which we know has no investment in underestimating the amount of white supremacy right. in this country, they only count about five thousand. Clan members of clan groups in the entire country. Yeah, I forget. And what a lot of the f- things they count are just a couple of people in who 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 live in a house in Idaho when they have a website. Yeah, I, I forget which columnist wrote it, but it was a it was a brilliant statement when he he said that the the demand for white supremacist vastly outstrips the supply. <laughs> that, that's right. When when Richard Spencer had his white supremacist convention. In Washington D.C., around the time of Trump's, Trump's inauguration, it was widely, widely reported. So this national convention brought in about 200 people. That was it. Yeah, and most people don't know who Richard Spencer is. Um, yeah, he, he's he's a he's a prominent white supremacist, founder of AltRight.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these the, these people are. They're good media people. I mean, the media love them, and it makes you think that they need people like Richard Spencer. They love someone like David Duke. They love him. CNN loves David Duke. You put him on, you can show there's a threat out there. You can try to align him with Donald Trump and Donald Donald Trump voters, and you keep repeating it and repeating it, and that, that media reality becomes reality for a lot of people. Now, the, you mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird is one of the most commonly assigned books in high school English. Uh, but still, it's only about 20, 25% of high school students in this country will ever be assigned that, that book. Uh, but it, it's now it's now being banned in some places because it has the N word in it. Of course, it has all the right moral take on race relations, but right. it's got the N word, and so that upsets people. And they want they want it banned. I think there are other problems with with that book, but but not that that's not one of them. I teach books that have the N word in it, like Frederick Douglass. I teach Frederick Douglass all the time. And he says the N-word in, in that book, and, and uh, this is a college class. In my African-American studies class, I got played Tupac and Biggie Smalls at, at, uni- <laughs> okay. at, at boy, university. Boy, be careful. Yeah, and I, I would have thought To Kill a Mockingbird would get taken down by sort of the Me Too movement and the Believe All Women as opposed to the, uh, uh, the race relations folks. Well, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one problem, and it's a historical problem with To Kill a Mockingbird. One of the central dramatic moments is when this this young young white girl is on the witness stand claiming that she was raped, and she's under cross examination by Atticus Finch, and it's very clear the whole thing is breaking down. This is a fabrication. She says, "All right, I got one thing to say. I ain't gonna say no more. That nigga raped me, and if all of you don't convict him, says you're a bunch of yellow." Thinking cowards. She looks over at the jury and at the judge. You're a bunch of yellow stinking cowards, and everyone is quiet. 
I guarantee you this scene never would happen in a Southern courtroom in 1920. Never would this happen because there is no way that a judge and these jury members who are solid middle-class members in the town, they are shopkeepers and, and they are, they are some, you know, real estate people. Never would they listen to a 19-year-old white trash, illiterate girl start shrieking in a courtroom. She would have been stopped in five seconds. There was a very strong class orientation in the South and the white trash and girls, not even women, girls had no place in the courtroom to say anything like that. So that, 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 that climactic moment is really based upon a, a historical falsehood. Right. So we've we've covered uh, historical knowledge, literary knowledge. Let's take a look uh, at something you mentioned earlier on in our conversation: uh, the impact um, of technology, social media, on our fundamental social fabric. And one of the things you mentioned is something that I've I've found very interesting, which is that only over the past two decades have uh, teenagers um, and children had the ability to essentially have an entire world, an entire peer network that's impervious to adults, right? Which it has all sorts of implications, even the rise of cyberbullying. Back in the day, if you got bullied at school or on the playground, once you came home, you were safe. Uh, now you are not because the bullying can continue at the supper table, after a- after dinner, in the bedroom, um, through the phone. It also means all sorts of things can take place without parents having any idea of what's going on. Sexual relationships can take place through the phone and, and very frequently do, which, of course, the passing around of intimate pictures has led to a spike in in suicides and teen suicides, which is why uh, Vanity Fair journalist Nancy Jo Salles did a massive research project resulting in the book The Secret Life of the American Teenager. So what did your research show you about, about the impact of this on the social fabric of our country? If we've lost a, a common literary canon that we all could refer to, we're forgetting our historical knowledge. What's left of our social fabric once these the screens, the technology, the social media gets through with it? This is a terrible, terrible thing for adolescents to be able to form their their own their own enclave, their own universe, and that adults have a hard time penetrating into it. Very, very bad. Now they've always wanted to do this in, in my lifetime. This goes way back. This is natural. As soon as teens got a fair amount of leisure time, which took place over the course of the twentieth century, as soon as they got leisure time and they could fill it with themselves, then we got one. A lot of a lot of the peer pressure went way up. We got youth culture created and disseminated and especially marketed because there are companies that love youth culture because kids have spending money and they're they're consumers and they care about one another and what one another thinks and so uh, the teen fashions are are a big a big business once they started being able to do that then we lost a fundamental social process, the social
social process of adults teaching adolescents how to be adults. We found that young people copy one another a lot more than they copy their parents or other mentors. Right. We found them uh, wanting to hide things more and more from the parents and being able to do it in a way that they that they couldn't do it before. And that we live we live in time. We live in one generation passeth away and another generation cometh. There's always a constant process of tradition taking place. And I mean in the old sense of the Latin word tradere, you know, the handing down, the handing over. And and when we have the teenagers forming their own world, one, it's not a historical world. There's no historical content in youth culture. It's all about the present. And it's all about social stuff going on. What happened last weekend at the party? Uh, hey, where's everyone going to meet? It's all present-oriented. Then we, we, we lose the tradition process. That, that 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 contract between the past and the future is is broken, and they're able to maintain this adolescent culture well into their twenties and into their thirties too. We have thirty year old men playing video games all the time, yep. going on and 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 acting like uh, spoiled teenagers when when they when they lose those games. Uh, we, we have kids going to college and then going into the workforce and they still act like those characters or they want to act like those characters. Remember the TV show from the 90s, Friends? That sort of thing, yeah. What were Friends? They were a bunch of 20 and then even 30-year-olds still acting like 17-year-olds. And I was stunned when I saw the number of graduate students at my university who would all gather to watch Friends. And I, I was thinking, when I, when I was 23 years old, I wouldn't watch this fluff. This was for 15-year-olds, I thought. But, but you know, the, the maturity level keeps, keeps going down at each, at each age. Uh, of of adulthood, where where you you've got, you know, for, for for me, I mean, I I was forced to go into adult issues. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have all these tools to keep in touch. When I left high school, I kept in touch with nobody. I went to college, and I never talked to any high school kids ever again. Yeah, well, whom, whom, whom I knew. What one of the one of the pressures? Time to move on. Time to grow up. But one of the pressures that that you would have faced as a young man, and correct me if I'm wrong, that has shifted now, which which sort of leads into one of the things that has escalated dramatically since since your book came out, would be the rise of internet porn. Uh, Pornhub in, in 2016 released a report of how many hours of pornography were viewed on their site just in that 12-month period. When you add up all those hours together, it's roughly, uh, well, it's, it's more than half a million years worth of pornography reviewed 
<laughs> just on their websites in a 12 month span. And so like my dad got married when he was he was 22 and they had me shortly thereafter. My mom was a year younger than he was. The same is true for for most of of his generation. He came from a family of 11. My mom came from a family of nine children with with seven surviving childhood. And so the, my understanding always was that well, you needed to grow up because you needed to get a job to make money because if you were going to get married, then you had to support your wife and your children. And this was just sort of the way life was traditionally expected to unfold. And so you didn't really have time to to to, to camp out in this, this adolescent period that didn't really exist. Um, as Esalen and a lot of people point out, you've pointed this out before as well, there never really was this, this uh, weird intermediary period between childhood and manhood um, for all of human history, it's a very recent invention. Um, yeah. But now with with internet porn, we see marriage dying out as a thing that people do. Um, a lot of people are just not not deciding not to get married at all. And actually, the rates of 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 promiscuity and the rates of sex before marriage are dropping because porno or pornography is is replacing actual sex entirely. Right. I've, I've said before that video games allow men to feel like they've accomplished something when they actually haven't accomplished anything but become more useless. And pornography allows the exact same thing in regards to sexuality. They can outsource all the endorphins. Um, they can get those same endorphins, I should say, that they would have had to get by actually accomplishing something, you know, slaying a metaphorical dragon in a real way, getting a promotion, you know, knocking out of the, out of the park at a new job, you know, helping build a fence if you want to boil it all the way down. And on the other side, same thing as as well. In order to engage in a sexual relationship, you had to do all of these things first, right? You had to build a relationship. You needed to commit to that relationship. You know, you needed to, you know, get a job that made you worthy of that relationship. And because technology has outsourced those things, um, what do you what do you think that's done uh, to to those relationships when you talk about this drive that at age twenty three you just didn't have time to watch stupid TV shows or play video games? But it, couldn't it be true that it's because your generation was um, engage, embarking on a trajectory that, quite simply, we just don't see happening anymore? Yeah, I, I think that the the impact is all, everything you've that you've mentioned uh, the the ability to sort of live in your own world and get all the pleasure satisfaction that you really you really want. You're good, you know. And so, like guys who go into guy world. Uh, they can hang out with with their buddies, and then they can, you know, do what they need to do to make themselves uh, satisfied. They don't need to. They don't need to date. They don't need. You know, courting takes work. You know, mm-hmm. and you don't need to worry about having to prove yourself to to anyone. So that's one thing. Yeah, it's it's, it's taken care of. You know, in the old days, uh, if you wanted to to have sexual experiences, you you got married. Yeah. Or you, you got a real serious girlfriend, and before the sexual revolution, you couldn't do that unless you showed her that you were ready, that you were responsible, that you were going somewhere, you were going to be stable, you were going to be gainfully employed, you would be a good father. So women actually had the power over sex that would help make boys grow up. They would make us behave better. They would make us become more responsible. If we want to have her, we got to show 
that we're reliable and responsible. And this is a long-term situation of, of the differences between the sexes and how important it was for women to make men better, to make them grow up, stop right. being boys. Don't have to anymore. The sex is all. I mean, even with the sexual revolution, you know, you you had much more availability with sex with with women, and so you didn't have to demonstrate yourself so strongly. And so the addition of all the availability on the internet is just aggravating that whole that whole process. And I'll tell you what I really worry about is fifteen year old boys. Now they've seen it all. They've seen everything. They've seen things that when I was 15, I couldn't imagine. When I was 15, oh my goodness, I would love to find a Playboy magazine somewhere. I mean, this, this was, this was gold. Now, well, you know, Playboy, that's nothing. You know, that, that, uh, uh, that, that, that's, that's you know, old hat for them. That, what they get on, what they get on the, on the internet is, uh, again, it almost desensitizes them to romance, to courtship, to seduction, even. And so a lot yeah. of them. They, well, it comes. It, com- it comes full things. circle. Is that an appreciation for literature is contingent on being able to relate to the emotions and the concepts that are being conveyed by the author, and pornography absolutely devastates cultural instincts. Uh, it, it, abs- it obliterates romance. Like there's now deals going on in high school where the boys will say, I'll kiss you if you give me oral sex. Um, it's, <laughs> oh, it, yeah. it's sort of reversed around that there are teenagers who have, who have, who have had sex long before ever holding hands, for example. Well, how do you relate um, to any number of great works of literature yeah. that expound for a page or more, or even a paragraph or more uh, on the wonder of holding well, a girl's hand for the first time when that's fundamentally an experience you can't understand? You know, we can add to this the fact that girls are significantly outdoing boys in academic achievement. Yeah. Girls now get most of the four-year college degrees. For many years, they've gotten more doctorates than boys, than men earned. Uh, Medical school now is 50-50. More girls went to law school last year than boys went to law school last year. So. Girls are outstripping boys in academics. If you go to the Cal State University system, for instance, the biggest university system in the world, not not the university system, the Cal State system, um, it's about 65% female in the undergraduate population. Think about that. Two to one, girls to boys. Now, this creates a very strange situation. It produces social distortions because girls have to compete for the boys. In the way boys used to have to compete for the girls, girls now have to compete for the boys. And it's two to one. That is, that is a huge yeah, wow. difference. And it creates forms of competition and compromise among the girls. And a lot of the boys, they're sitting, they're sitting pretty. Because they they've got a lot more opportunity there than than the girls do, 
And so, yeah, the negotiations that you just talked about, that, that set in to college life uh, heavily, heavily. And I often see a couple walking by, college students, you know, a guy and a girl going out on a, on a, for an evening date. She's got some nice little dress on, some sandals. Her hair is her hair is nicely, you know, done in in some way. And there's the guy wearing flip flops, cargo shorts, t-shirt, and a baseball cap. And I want to say, you know, young lady, you must be able to do better than this. <laughs> but I think she would probably respond, no, they're all like. I, so my final question is where I, I hope to extract uh, some hope. Uh, I, won't, I won't go as far as to say optimism, um, but, but I w- would say hope is the one thing I think that's changed since your book came out um, would be the, the sort of a surge, uh, the surge of, of interest in, in podcasts and very long podcasts as well. Uh, Jordan Peterson, I find him interesting as a cultural phenomenon more than as a thinker. I, I did get his book, 12 Rules for Life, and I, I realized partway through that the reason I, I didn't think it was, uh, you know, a, a tremendously interesting was simply because all of the stuff that he lays out in that book, my father taught me, um, which is a privilege mm-hmm. I had that, that a lot of the young men that are flocking to him did not have. And so I kind of realized that, oh, OK, so a lot of people love this guy. Um, because he's actually giving them the advice that they didn't get from a father figure that I was, I was blessed and privileged to have, um, having married parents, I think is the real privilege that exists in society over and above all this nonsense about, about race and and all of that. Um, and, but you know, his lectures often run to three, three and a half hours long. Um, because, because I, I'd live pretty close to where he taught university, I I attended some of his lectures and these halls are packed with hundreds and hundreds of people who are willing to sit and listen to somebody talk for two to three hours. Um, and it's, it's about genocide and Dostoyevsky and Tolstoy and the meaning of scripture. And some of it's, some of it's fairly abstract and some of it, he's still clearly working through as he's talking, but there seems to be a thirst for something that delves a lot deeper than just on the surface. Because if I think if, if a lot of uh, academics have been told 15 years ago that there's going to be this professor that can get kids to listen in rapt attention for three hours while he sort of goes on a literary roller coaster ride through psychology um, and, and the meaning of the Bible, they would have said this is nonsense, but it's happening. Um, uh, yeah. so, so how do you see that whole phenomenon that I'm, I'm sure you've watched with interest? Well, I think Peterson tied into a few things that so much of our culture had ignored. For instance, he says that, you know, what people really want is not happiness. They want meaning. Right. They want to live meaningful lives. And so the the consumer culture that we live in, and so much of the Internet is just consumer culture, is always feeding, you'll be happy. This will please you. This, this, you'll enjoy this. And he says, you know, meaningfulness is more important. And very often, meaningfulness is not enjoyable. It gives you, it, 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 it might give you a deep, deep pleasure, but often the surface part is difficult. You know, but there's, there's a, you feel when something meaningful hits you, you feel something more authentic going on there. And people want truth. You know, they don't want just mindless pleasure. 
They want truth as well. And he, he insists upon that. And he's got the, uh, he's got the ethos in himself. You can see this is a guy who's suffered. He's, he's gone through some things. And he talks a lot about his daughter right. and what happened there. But also, he stood up. And boy, did they try to take him down. He said no. He said no. And they went after him. And he wouldn't bend. And that, that sticks. He does interviews. And he, uh, when, when people are obviously hostile, they obviously want to want to take him out. He holds firm, and there's we're, we're so tired of people who compromise, who apologize, who who are always trying to adapt to a politically correct world, and we're so fed up with it. Especially young men. Young men find it humiliating to have to be politically correct all the time, and they're told all the time how bad they are. And they're sick of hearing about it. And Peterson stands strong and firm, and he gives them a moral vision as well. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's what that's what they like. So they'll stay there for hours. My brother went and saw him. He's my age, and he, he said, you know, Peterson, he gives his all in those lectures. He really he he really gives all of himself when he presents these things. So it's not fake. It's it's not scripted. It's not it's not something that is so manufactured and 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 stage managed. It's real, you know. We'll say we'll call that it's real. So uh, I think that's what 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 reaches people. And maybe maybe the the podcasts are a return to a different pace and a different authenticity. They kind of, to me, it, it kind of replaces, the, you know, old FM radio, which had a lot of discussion. Right. A more leisurely kind of discussion. And it seems like uh, so much of this kind of discussion on TV and on radio, it's always political, right? There's so much politics. The podcasts often stray. Yes. From, it's not always politics all the time. We're talking about broad cultural things, psychological things, religious things, and that and that people want more. And, and what I find is a lot of it isn't isn't video. They just listen. That's right. Yes. You just like to listen, it, like like they did with the radio. And I, I actually find the the podcasts that are video too. I find the I find the visual part kind of annoying. Yeah. I don't want to look at you guys sitting in a, sitting in a studio with the headphones on. Let me just hear the conversation. So final question, where can people find your work? Well, you know, I, 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 I do a podcast at First Things Magazine uh, every week. And, you know, the, the books are all on, uh, the books are, are out there on Amazon. And I write a lot of articles for for First Things and for for other 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 magazines like uh, the websites, the American Greatness Center for American Greatness. So uh, I just just you can type me into Google the news page on Google. There we go. Come up. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking all this time to have this conversation with us. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Mark Bauerlein. As he mentioned, you can read his regular commentary over at First Things. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you can find past shows over at LifeSiteNews.com, where you'll also find daily commentary and news stories from the front lines of the culture wars. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.